Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Are you ready for a rewarding career in the electrical industry? Quality Electric of the Coastal Carolinas, QECC, is looking for qualified electricians and electrical helpers to join its Charleston team. QECC offers guaranteed full-time hours, make up to $30 per hour with possible performance bonuses and career growth opportunities. Enjoy benefits like health insurance, dental and vision coverage, 401k plans, and more. If you're a motivated, experienced electrician, this job is for you. QECC is an equal opportunity employer. For all job inquiries, send email to hr at qeccinc.com. Coming up on the payoff, Deborah Olson spent more than 25 years working as a hairdresser in the film industry. So it is no surprise her story is ripped from a Hollywood script. She moved to L.A. as a teen and the party was just getting started. Her run in movies and TV was legendary in and out of the studio. And her collapse was just as epic. Now 19 years sober, she describes how she got to the other side. And along the way in this conversation, she drops some serious gems on how she stays serene. Speaking of serenity, this guy was on CBS this uh, CBS National this week and also had a piece done on him on KTLA in Los Angeles. Guy does some great work with the Jimmy Miller Fund out there teaching guys and girls with PTSD how to surf. I'm talking about Kevin Souza. Good morning. Deborah. Peter. All right. How's it going? Oh, gosh. Got home from LA, safe and sound. It was an easy drive. And got my house all clean this morning, and I'm ready to chit chat, have my coffee. Oh, you're in Monterey, and you went down to LA. I went to L.A. because I worked there for 40 years, and I drive back every six weeks uh, to see clients. And you live, so you're, what are you looking at right now? I mean, are you, like, like if you were to go I'm outside? Looking at the, I'm looking at the Pacific Ocean. I'm looking at the bay, the Monterey Bay. I'm above, if you know, do you know Monterey, Carmel, San Francisco? I'm an amateur. I saw Big Little Lies, so I think I know Monterey, but I don't know Monterey. It's, big little, it's so funny, but he asked me about that. I'm like, I've never seen that, so I don't know. Yeah. The Monterey... Carmel, Pacific Grove, it's all this little isolated peninsula. There's no freeways, and San Francisco's about 100 miles from here, north. And you can take the coast up either way, but it's a lot longer. You make the, so, so you make that drive every six weeks? Every six weeks I do that. I got out of L.A. because, you know, it's, L.A.'s not a place to get old in, you know. And I went there in my early 20s. And I um, just drove drove like a bat out of hell till the wheels fell off. And then I got sober when I'm 42. And I'm just now turning 61 in August. So you'll have 20 uh, years, uh, like, coming February. up here. Yeah, in February. Wow. So I want to get into your story because it's fascinating. The way we got together is sort of cosmic. I did, uh, what's her name? Julie Hayes. Uh, yeah, I did her hair. The great Julie wedding. Hayes. Yeah, I did her hair. We got to chatting and... I said that I'd moved up from L.A. and worked in Beverly Hills and film business and blah, blah, blah. I said, I, and, you know, until I couldn't do it anymore and the wheels fell off and everybody ended up in rehab. <laughs> so, yeah, you and she, she gave me a call and said, I got the perfect guest for you. And then we called you. That's we got to talking. Said, yeah, that's what it was. And she goes, you know, and I told her about, you know, all the movies and film and the cocaine and the alcohol. And it was, it was mad, it was mad, mad fun in the 80s and 90s. No, just so you know, we've ar we've already started, okay? And because uh, this is too good, I can't I can't take this stuff out. Uh, <laughs> okay. And I, I so I want to back I want to back up a little. What did you do in the movie and film industry? Okay, I started um, my little life up in Northern California in a place called uh, Sacramento, and then Roseville, little tiny suburb, 
And um, I got my hairdressing license when I was 17 because my mom said, you're a piece of shit. You're not going to be anything. You may as well just, you know, do hair and makeup because all you think about is, you know, making everybody pretty. I thought, okay, sounds good. So I did. Thank God she was a bitch and told me to do that because it was a very lucrative career. But uh, right away, right away, I wanted out of that little small community. So I thought, where am I going to go? L.A. So I was really young. That's my early 20s, and I hit the road. Were you drinking a and lot as went, a kid? Oh, God, yeah. I started drinking when I was about four years old. I was a toddler. My mom and dad both were alcoholics. They were divorced. Um, my mom had gin and tonic on the table. She had cough medicine. She had all kinds of – I took anything that said causes drowsiness, even though I couldn't read, you know. <laughs> Anything with the with a stick figure, right? That was like falling over. I was like, okay, give me that, right? That logo. <laughs> you know what? Any any. I remember I grew up in this really affluent neighborhood, and we we all had horses, and it all looked real pretty on the outside. And here's me in the seventh grade. Anybody got any weed? Mess. But they were they were giving me freaking oregano to smoke, and out of the garbage can, whatever would make me get me out of me. I was was arrested. My first arrest. I was twelve years old. You know. Um, all, all the, all my friends were a little bit older than me. I wanted to be mature and grown up. So my friends are all 15 and then their friends are 18. We're driving around in the middle of the night. You know, we had, uh, Benny's, if anybody remembers Benny's beans, you know, upper speed. We yes. Were, okay. We were, Benny's like greenies almost. Yeah, that's right. Well, we were eating those, um, uh, to lose weight. Me and my girlfriend, so I'm 12, she's 15. Please pull us over in our private little neighborhood. Police took me home. You know, they're like, how old are you? And I'm like, 12. You know, and they're like, oh, geez, little girl. And they took me home. My parents beat the shit out of me, my mom and my stepdad. My stepdad was molesting me. I wanted out. So you're home You're out. home getting abused by this guy. Who's, he's just, I'm he's, home getting abused and molested, and they're drinking and showing me. And, you know, he's showing me off. Like, I'm like, a little stepdaughter, and she hot, and they're all talking about it. It was awful. And then the next-door neighbor got his. You know, after that guy died, the next door neighbor got his hands in me, and I was 15, babysitting, and they were best friends. I mean, I, I had a screwed up start to this whole journey, screwed up life. So by the time I was 15, I was being kicked out, I was running away, I was high, I was drunk, I was teaching my friends how to drink, you know, I get my hairdressing license, thank God, and I bought a car and I blew out of it. Some people get the double, some people get the double whammy, right, Deborah? Like you have a dysfunctional, like an extremely dysfunctional upbringing and you, it sounds like you had the alcoholism in your blood. That's, that, that's, that's a, that's a rough start. I had a double whammy. I wasn't wanted my, you know, most parents fight to have the kids. They fought who wasn't going to get me. And I had a twin (laughs) sister who my mom pitted against me. She went on her journey. We, We don't talk to this day. I went one way, she went the other, and she's my twin sister. And so, and then I had an older brother, and he escaped and went in the military right away. So my only rock disappeared. He was gone, and 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 my disease took flight. I was around eleven or twelve. When did you when get When did you get involved in, in hairdressing? When did you know that's something you wanted to do? I was, you know what? I was always just kind of playing in my bedroom uh, with my girlfriend, doing hair, makeup, and. You know, it was just something I liked doing, you know, made me feel pretty because I was such a mess inside. So I I, became, I was so OCD. I was cleaning my bedroom and, and putting makeup on and a ton of makeup and, and doing hair. I just wanted to be anybody but me. And so my mom said, you know, you're, you're a piece of shit. Go to hairdressing school. You know, you may as well learn how to, how, it's all you do anyway. You know, you're not smart. You're stupid. And little did she know that that was a real good move. <laughs> <laughs> and so what happens but, when you're 17 and you and you move out of there? Uh, oh, God. I, I know I was 17, still living at home, going to beauty school. Oh, God, I was blowing the instructor. He was 33. You know, I was I was, I was, was going deer hunting, drinking whiskey, and blowing the instructor. The, the, the hairdressing. So the, all this, So there's yeah. just, it's, it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. It is a, somehow I managed graduate beauty school, go to San Francisco, get my license right away, went to a salon and made a little bit of money. And um, I think I ended up at my sister's first. It's also, you held my life up. It's like Swiss cheese. Yeah. I don't remember a lot of it. I don't remember the sequences. But I think I ended up at my sister's house in Monterey area because she had left. She got married at 18 and moved back. Uh, then met some guy, moved to, to, to Monterey area, um, 
you know, she was doing her own drugs and alcohol situation, and she was abusing me, and anyway, I met this guy who, <laughs> I'm a raging drug addict, alcoholic, out of control, immature maniac, and I meet a guy who had gone to West Point, so he's a stellar human being. Yeah. Stellar, <laughs> smart, you know, in the Army, flying helicopters, he's a captain. Where'd you meet him? Well, pardon me? Where did you meet him? I met him doing hair in Monterey gotcha. when I was 21 years old, I think I was, and uh, moved in with him right away, and he was having none of it in short order. Okay. You know, he was conservative from Michigan, and he figured out right away that, you know, I was young, I was cute, these guys were falling in love with me, and shortly thereafter, they're like, oh, this little girl's a mess. Well, it's funny though. It's it, it, and I can uh, similar stories. At least at times in the beginning of my addiction, I was kind of always attracted to to solid people. I guess you would say people. I don't know if I was looking for them to fix me or whatever, but I definitely I I never was turned off by people like that. Like people that had it together, you know. I, I oh no, I but I didn't last very long in those circles at all. I didn't either. I didn't either. I didn't. I mean, I I. I had a guy from West Point fall in love with me, a guy from Annapolis. I had some stellar human beings. Do you think that, that had anything like, to do with your brother going into the service? Like that made those guys attractive? Zero. No, 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 no. Nothing, nothing, nothing. It was just by happenstance, you know, um, that I just, I loved these guys that were conservative and straight, that they could pull me out of the hell that I was in, I think. Just to back you up know? a little bit, you mentioned, you know, you're, you're suffering abuse as a very young girl, and then you get into like almost maybe what could be seen as like a transactional relationship with this instructor at the hairdressing school. Do you think it all starts? I mean, obviously the alcoholism. You're, I'm, I'm, I'm like you. We're just filling that black hole. At least for me, it was. But also mm-hmm. at the same time, do you think it starts with that abuse? Like, not just the alcoholism, but the abuse element. You know what? Knowing what I know now, and having a hundred different forms of of treatment and uh, you know, every spiritual, you know, I'm 61 now. This journey started a long time ago. And when I look back, oh, God, I was looking for anybody to fix me. I was looking for daddy figures. I was dating men 60 when I was 20. You know, I got into relationships. Any, anyone that said, I love you or I like you, I didn't care who they were. I was, I was going to go, I was going to go with that. Anyone that liked me, fixed me, picked me, picked me, loved me, you know, that's all I could do was fix me, pick me, love me. What was your favorite, what was your favorite drug to do? You know, I didn't care. Honestly, I didn't care. It it was just that in the 80s with the big uh, cocaine influx, I, uh, when when I got to L.A., oh, that was everything. It was so acceptable. What year did you get to L.A.? I'm sorry? What year did you get to L.A.? Oh gosh, I don't even remember. I was around. I uh, the guy, the, the West Point guy, broke up with me, and of course, I didn't know why back then. He was. I I, I, I feel his struggle later in life. I kept all his 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 love notes and everything. It was all all the love notes I kept. They were all peppered with "I love you," but I wish you knew how much I loved you. I didn't believe anybody could love me, so I just I left him. Or he broke up with me because I was a crazy drunk at that time and I got my little car with a little stuffed animal he gave me and I drove to Southern California somebody knew somebody in Laguna I ended up spending the night there I went to ABC television somebody gave me the name of the guy at the head of makeup I called and called and called and called and called till they hated me and they gave me a job (laughs) so So what's that like how did you get your foot in the door I mean obviously we know how you get your foot in the door at ABC but was that your big break that was because you had you know, you have to be in the union or you have to have work. It's catch-22. But you see, when I was young and hot and cute and invincible and a drug and alcohol, see, my cocaine started down there, too. And the drinking was way out of control. And I ended up getting a, finding a roommate who, he was a, he, he was an ex-bodybuilder. And if I look back, he was just a creep. He was in his 40s. He loved young girls. <laughs> and, and he was just, you know, he was as round and fat as he was tall and short and fat and bald. And I move in with this guy's a roommate. He didn't care if I paid the rent. Because <laughs> you're an attractive younger woman. I was a, yeah, he, he took me to the Bahamas. 
I got, he drove me to ABC television. I just happened to have gotten a name from a guy or somebody gave me the name of the guy at the head of the department. And I called every day. I said, I'm calling for Rudy. I'm calling for Rudy. This is Deborah. Finally, he took the call and said, you know, it's people like you that get ahead in this business because, you know, you're pissing everybody off. <laughs> so at that point in time, so you start working, are you working on like, like. I got a job for a general hospital. Oh, okay. Doing hair. And what was so funny is I've been watching general hospitals since I was 16. So all these people that I know, they're coming in the green room and I'm doing their hair. Luke and Laura. I mean, that's it. That's, that's. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. All of it. Yeah. So. Oh, they're all coming in, and 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 I don't have all the girls that worked there were like, "Oh, are you in the union?" I'm like, "No, <laughs> I was dumb as stuff." Well, in short order, they wanted me gone. These girls did not want me there because a all the the the, the people liked me, the stars, because I'm sitting in the green room talking and flirting with all the actors and the guys and the girls, everybody, and. Uh, all the actors came out from New York because we did this all-star thing. They're wearing my earrings. and We're all chatting. I don't know who's doing drugs. I don't know who's not. I'm just doing my deal. I don't know what's going on. I didn't know what's going on. I was just this little girl from the stick. How did it evolve, your, your your drug use, like on a daily basis? I, I, I know I, I listened you know to uh, Demi Moore interviewed once. She, she, I think she did, had to turn on that show, and she talked about – getting involved with uh, whoever the actor was. It was Luke, which I'm sure you know. Yeah, I don't want to name. I won't yeah, yeah, name sure. any names, of sure. course. But I ended up seeing a lot of people fast forward when I got sober when I was 42. You know, some of those, I remember going up to one of the actresses and saying, remember me? I was on the show and I was doing hair. She's like, no, I'm like, yeah, I don't know. You know, and um, she was still a train wreck. So yeah. I had gotten even some time and she still couldn't get sober. So there's a lot of... Uh, I just say we all ended up, everybody ended up in rehab at some stage. I actually never did go to rehab. I didn't have the money. I wasn't a famous person. The wheels had fallen off. I was blackballed, basically. I got a job at a hair salon, which I don't want to name names of sure. people or places. Yeah, that's fine. So well, I wanted, why did you get blackballed? Because I was, <laughs> I was a drunk and a drug addict. And I didn't know it at that time, but because... I didn't know why nobody would hire me after a while. So I started freelancing. I would meet photographers, and I would freelance, and I would bring... There was always drugs and alcohol everywhere. And when the druggies and the drunk kicked you out, you know you're screwed. Yeah, it's always like the Stephen Adler getting kicked out of Guns N' Roses. It's like, okay. Exactly, but I I still didn't know I had a problem. I still didn't know why people wouldn't hire me. So then I was going all over Beverly Hills because I thought I was the shit. I really did. I thought I was a famous hairdresser and the wheels are falling off and I'm getting a job at this famous hair salon and that famous hair salon and they're all drunks and druggies, but I'm getting, I'm getting 86 everywhere, but I still don't know why because I thought I was so good and I was so hot and I was so wonderful that I was, I couldn't show up. I could, I could get hired. I could pull my shit together for a minute. They'd hire me and then I, I couldn't show. I wouldn't show up. I always or say I, that, like the alcohol. If you, if you have alcoholism or drug addiction, like it's sooner or later, you're showing the drug addict is showing up. You can do great for an interview. You can do great for the first month, but at some point, for me, the junkie was walking through those doors. Oh no! Exactly, exactly, exactly. So it it got to the point where I was. I thought everybody was doing blow on their station. They weren't. I was because I thought I was that cool. You know. And, 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 and guys are asking owners of the salon if they can do me, shit like that. Yeah. I didn't think I had a part in any of this. I didn't think I had a part in any of it. I had a part in all of it. I, I was, men and, and alcohol and drugs, it was all, it was all one in the same. It all came together, right? It all was one in the same. Yeah, you I tried. You were giving me drugs, I was screwing you. I was accused of things, however, that I wasn't doing. But it sure looked like it. I'm in the. I'm in the dressing room with guys. They're giving me blow. I'm not blowing them or screwing them. Eventually, maybe I was, but I was doing their drugs and drinking. What was the culture like on those television sets without naming names? But was there, was it open? Because I've read and heard, you know, everybody, uh, people sometimes on the staff would supply actors with cocaine. I mean, was it that? Oh, God, yeah. 
Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And what was even more, I started taking uh, an acting class, an improv class. And um, I was then, I started going to parties with people and actors and, and producers and all this stuff. And I can tell you that whatever crazy shit you see on TV, the Moody Shampoo, it is 100,000% accurate. Okay. You know, why was, I remember moving in with, I don't even remember, I was renting a room or something, or I could have been a nanny even, you know, for this, I, God, I just, it just came to me. I was hired as a nanny for a druggie, for, for, for a cocaine addict. They had this big, huge, fat house out in the valley, and she was doing blow all the time. She had a Jaguar, so she gives me the Jag so I can look like the shit. Was she an actress? I, no, okay. I don't remember. She may have been in the film business. I don't remember but I had a boyfriend that was supplying us with the blow and he would come and I remember taking her car and, and I went to this party. It was, you walked in the front door and it was just bowls of blow, bowls of blow, swimming pools, naked people, orgies, party people everywhere. It was, it was madness and, but it was real life. It yeah. was real life. I thought it was normal. And I was in my early twenties, a girl, riding horses through the country smoking oregano <laughs> just to be bald and this, my, to my great pleasure and this is this is <laughs> this is la in the 80s where people really aren't turning their nose up at cocaine or maybe they are right because it's oh not it's not really looked down upon are you seeing people work you know are you seeing a lot of people like work on cocaine and, and maybe seeing people have the occasional meltdown on the set are you seeing it all the stuff that People were having breakdowns because you were seeing people breaking down. You saw um, people, you know, you do enough of this stuff. I remember being up for five days in a row. And I remember standing, I was either on set or on, we were either filming or shit, something was going on. But I remember a couple of us, we were standing huddled up eating a, a daisy. We were staring at us. They're all looking at us. And I'm like, because we're fucking eating flowers, man. We're eating flowers. <laughs> we got we to gotta get out of here. And we turn around and when, I think we either hid in a closet or hid somewhere. We were jonesing. We started come up with, coming up with passwords to, to get out. and go On to a staff. major television or movie set. Yeah. What do, are you comfortable telling me some of the sets, some of the shows and movies you worked on? No, so I, I like I said, I'm not going to give any 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 people out never in a million years would okay. I do that. But I saw a lot of these people later um, in the room. A lot of them. A lot of them are not. Some of them died, and some of them are sober, and some of them are trying to get sober. So as you move, you move through this career, and I, I totally respect that. You move through this career, and you're kind of flying. Obviously, you're flying way too close to the sun, but you're you're flying like literally and figuratively. Your career is probably taken off. It's so empowering. I, I had a situation when I was, you know, I was drinking and using, and I worked in the NBA, and I was doing public relations. And you're constantly around the players, and you're constantly in the locker room. Once in a while, you'll hang out with them, or you'll travel with the team. And it's all, it's very easy to leverage the continued use and partying against like, well, look, I'm, I'm doing this, you know, I, I, I have to, you know, I could make sense of it. And then I couldn't make sense of it anymore because I didn't have any more of this. Uh, I was alone um, doing drugs and drinking all the time. And, you know, what was it for you that kind of brought you to, the, to, to your knees when you were like, oh, boy, I, you can't leverage anything against getting sober anymore? Well, well. The the, the 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 party rolled so fast and so for so long that I uh, you know you made a lot of money doing hair and then we spent it all and I was living from rental to rental from guy to guy from you know all over California be going here I'd get a movie in Santa Cruz and back to LA I mean. It was madness. It was 100% out of control madness. What was, if you could put your finger on, what was the craziest story for you? Like when you look back and you're like, wow, I can't believe I lived through that or. You know what? There were, there were so many. I remember, I remember one incident. I was living with a guy out in the valley and this was coming towards the end of the bottom. And 
again, he was he was going to be a savior. He was straight. He was conservative. He lived in a house up in the hills, and he was a dentist, and he was going to save me, and I was going to be okay. He had kids. I was going to, we were going to get married. I was going to make, well, again, we went out. We par- I party. He doesn't. I move in with him because that was my MO. I go on a date with you and I move in because I was cute. I was young. I think that was in my early 30s. But there were a million incidents. Well, he he kicked me out ultimately and I was living in his garage. And then to make money, I this girl called me. It was a girl we did a film with. She was a hooker. She called me, said, do you need money? I said, yeah. I said, we're going to go to the Beverly Hills Hotel. We're going to have sex with this guy and you get 500 bucks. I'm like, okay. So I show up. I'm crawling on my hands and knees and bronze panties, you know, and I didn't want to have sex with him. So it was as quick as $500 for no sex, you know, I ever had in my life. He did the sex and I pretended he was really drunk and I was kind of, I think I was kissing her and sitting on his lap. I don't know what's going on, but I didn't screw him. I didn't blow him. I got $500. I mean, it was just, it was just gross. And, but I did it and I was, and then I went back and slept in my boyfriend's garage. I mean, there was that. Then there was a car accident you know, where I broke my hips in 16 places, my shoulder, I jumped out of a car going 55 miles an hour. Were you in a fight with somebody? I, it was a boyfriend. He was a crazy person. He was a con man. I got involved with creeps and crazy people. And he was a druggie and a con man. And it was either jump out of the car or have him kill you. One or the other, you know, and that was just one of the stories. I ended up in the hospital. I'm broken, busted to pieces. He, Tried to make restitution, so give me a pile of diamonds. I end up in Boulder Creek, broken up. I can't drive. I can't walk. I'd have been Boulder Creek, going to a bar, giving the bartender fake diamonds for beer. I mean, that was just, it was just crazy story after crazy story. None of these things would have ever happened in my life had I never been a an abused, crazy, poor me victim. Everybody had abused and hurt poor little Debbie. So fast forward, the wheels are falling off. I'm 42 years old. Once again, I can't get a job. I'm blackballed. Everybody knows I'm a drunk and a drug addict. I'm in Beverly Hills living with some old man, 90-some-odd-year-old man. I found an ad. 90? He, he was a 92-year-old man that was blind and shitting on himself, ready to die, and he needed a caretaker. So they were paying me, I think, $100 a week or some shit to take care of this old man and giving me a credit card to buy food. Well, we both know that food consists of copious amounts of beer and wine because that's what they sell at, at Whole Foods. Yeah. So, so I would buy food. This was my, I thought, oh, this is wonderful. I'm living in Beverly Hills. Don't have to do anything. I've got a piece of shit car parked in the garage. It's just a druggy car in the garage. Years before, I have to back up, years before that, the cocaine kind of ended on its own. I just sort of left the film business, or blackballed from the film business, blackballed from everywhere. Nobody wanted, it, it was a big city, but a small town, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And everybody knew this is girls are drunk and are drunk, I can't get a job. So the cocaine just kind of ended. I'm broke, I have no money, I'm living with this old man, taking care of him, cleaning up because he's trying to scoop it out of his ass because he's an old guy. And I'm drinking around the clock now. I'm not doing drugs, but I'm drinking around the clock. Calling Pink Dot, they're delivering. I'm drinking beer and wine on their credit card all night long. All night long. And for days on end. And I remember very distinctly after a few days' run, and I had really long blonde hair, and I was 42, and I was still, I still thought I could maintain for a minute. But when I, I, I was drinking out of a brown paper bag, walking the streets of Beverly Hills, all dressed up, thinking I was the shit, yeah. still, and said some expletives in a very, very nice restaurant in Beverly Hills, and asked me to leave, and. Um, so I decided, park the car, leave the car, drink in the house, and that's all you need to do. And that's what I did. And it got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And I was drinking around the clock. And How was your health? Day, Did you have any health problems? Well, I was 
I looked. I was 42. I had cut all my hair off because I got really drunk and decided I need to bleach my hair with Clorox bleach. I'm a hairdresser, by the way. You know that. Yeah. And I bleached my hair with Clorox bleach, and I cut it all off because I think I'm going to be a punk now. I can change my gender. I'm going to be a punk. Well, I woke up, and I was crawling on the floor. My beautiful skin had turned to spots. I was 100 pounds, and I looked like a 70-year-old man. And I looked in the mirror, I remember, and I went, you are so fucked. And by this time, Peter, I was trying, I wasn't, I wasn't having fun anymore. It had been years and years since I'd had fun. So now it was just a suicide run. For yeah. years it had just been, you're just going to die. You're, you're a piece of shit. You've never been worth anything anyway. And now you're, it's just time to die. Your life's over. You know, and it was years I'd been trying to just kill myself. And so... I remember waking up on the floor, beer bottles and wine everywhere. I don't know where the old man was. I know. I think he, I think they had taken the old man out, or he died, or something. I don't remember. But I was alone, alone. I think it was after the the uh, stuffed animal Thanksgiving. I had a stuffed animal Thanksgiving. I just I you and the stuffed animal. Me and stuffed animals Thanksgiving. I didn't have a friend in sight. I didn't have any friends. And what year is this around? This was around 19, I got sober 2002. So this was probably around 2001. Okay. And I'm in the house. The guy moved out. It's Thanksgiving. I have no friends. I have no family. No, but nothing to do. Nothing to, my brother was still alive, but I, I wasn't really seeing him. He wanted, you know, he was still nice to me and talked to me because then he enabled me as much as he could. And then, um, you know, I didn't want to go to his house for Thanksgiving. I didn't, couldn't drink, you know. I, I, <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I, was, I Yeah, I wouldn't go anywhere where I couldn't get drunk. Yeah, I was just going, I was just, I was just down the rabbit hole. I, I, I just didn't want to be around anybody. I didn't want to drive all the way to Monterey where he lived. And, you know, and um, so the, 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 the last Thanksgiving was just me and a bunch of stuffed animals. And it was real for me. I dressed them all up. I sat around the dining table and I made food and I put a long Glenda the Goodwitch dress on and a tiara and I had a party. I was hammered and I bought champagne on with their credit card. So, oh God, it was bad. Well, when I, at 42 years old and it was February 2002, I, um, I was on my knees and I remember... Many times over the years, I had looked at Dr. Wayne Dyer, I looked at Marianne Williamson, I had looked at the Krishnas and the Buddhas, and, and, and I thought I was a spiritual person via all these avenues, but I never picked one. I never had a, you know, an awareness of any kind. And, um, when I was fast forward, backwards, when I was 15, and I had been molested by the neighbor. You know, well, that was in the church, the Christian church. So the Christians were all fucked up assholes as far as I was concerned. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want any part of any organized religion at all. I didn't trust a soul. I'm sober. I'm, I get sober at 42. I don't trust a soul, not a man, not a woman. I don't trust anybody. My own family hates me except my brother. Um, there was no, I didn't have any frame of reference for love or self-respect or the wheels had fallen off. I crashed and burned and I called Alcoholics Anonymous and, and uh, somebody on the phone, I even screamed at the guy and said, I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to a woman. And this really nice lady called me <laughs> we talked for a long, a long time. And I told her, you know, if you had my life, you'd, you'd be fucked up too. You know, it was poor me, poor me, poor me, 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 me. Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? And I, and I need to die. I'm not worthy of getting sober. I'm not. She couldn't have been kinder. She was the nicest lady. Her name was Janet. She sent over a couple, this very nice couple. Their name was Paul and Mike. I don't remember. Anyway, the very nice couple came and picked me up out of that apartment. February, I think it was, I don't know, it was, it was before February 2nd because I went to this meeting in Beverly Hills where she said, raise your hand and say I'm an alcoholic. Were you loaded when they picked you up? I was hungover and okay. fucked up, shaking, 
um, I was so alcohol poisoned and I didn't know it at the time. So when she said, could you raise your hand, Sam knew I'm an alcoholic. And I screamed at her and I said, go fuck yourself. And I was, I equated myself at that time as a feral cat you picked up in the alley. You know, I, I was angry. I don't, you know, I don't want some drunk telling me how to run my life. But there was only one problem with that statement. I had not been a very good job. <laughs> and I've remembered something I heard from Dr. Wayne Dyer. And he wrote something about what you say when you talk to yourself. And it was about affirmations. And I knew that the wheels fell off. I'm screwed. This is the last stop. I've got no money. I've got no hair. I look like an old man. I look like shit. I have no friends. I have no family. I have no money. i got nowhere to go. I have nowhere to go but up because I'm flattened. Flattened. I have nowhere to go. Nowhere to live. No car. It's a piece of shit. Barely runs. Sitting in a garage. I've got nowhere to go. And, um... My brother had even said at one stage, you know, I, I can't, I can't have you in my home where we don't know who you're going to be. Mm-hmm. And my brother is the kindest, sweetest, most amazing person in the world and never turned me away, ever. And that was the part where I cried because ultimately I was 11 years sober and he died at 61 of a heart attack. And I stayed sober. I stayed sober through that. And I remember getting sober thinking, if I get trapped in an elevator or my brother dies, I'm going to have to get drunk. If I get trapped in an elevator or my brother died and I didn't get drunk. And my cat died and I stayed sober. And, um, you know, I ended up in AA, pummeled to the ground, pummeled to the ground, loading the, my, my very existence. And I started to hear my story in meetings and I hated the meetings and I hated the people. You know, it wasn't my story to get sober. And go why why'd you keep going back? Because I had nowhere else to go. And everybody said, if you just come here, we'll help you. And so, so I did. I went to meetings and everybody said, if you just raise your hand and share, um, you'll be okay. And, and I raised, I, it, I don't know that it was, was that I hated them. It was that I didn't trust them. Everybody you know, they they had the, their their groups of people. They had friends. They were going for coffee. They were having lives. They were working. They were getting married. They were having children. And when when the women, I would go to women's meetings, and I hated women. My mother's vernacular was was hideous and heinous regarding women. My mother may or may not be a latent lesbian, but she there was she wanted to have boys, and she got two girls and a and a, and a gay guy and um my mother verbiage towards me was i hated my own vagina i hated my own boobs i hated the fact that i was a girl you know i if i wore a dress she called me a slut if i put makeup on she called me a slut and i ended up in a business of you know looking good I i just didn't trust anybody i didn't trust you i i didn't you know, I had to have women say, Deborah, it's okay to be a girl. It's okay. You know, I started mutilating myself when I was six years old. And um, tonight, I was a mess. And so now I'm in these meetings and, and people are telling me how to live and it's going to be okay and you don't have to drink and use. And I thought, how in God's name am I going to stay sober and apologize? Make The biggest amends that I ever had to make was to myself. You know, my birth control method was abortion. I'm not proud of that. I'm sick over it. I had to, I had to gutturally, I, I cried at the deepest level of some of the things that I had done to myself and the men that I had hurt and the people that I hurt. And they talked about an AA being a liar and a thief. And I'm like, no, I wasn't. I wasn't. And I had people say, did you, did you steal people's time? Yeah, I sure did. You, did you steal their heart? Oh, yeah. Mm. You know, I didn't steal your money. I stole your time and your heart. And I stepped on you because I just knew you, you didn't like me, you know. And, Peter, I'll tell you, it was the hardest. It wasn't, wasn't so. Uh, the hardest part of this whole journey was having to look 
at what I, my, the wreckage, what I had done to myself more than anything. And how am I going to learn to love this little girl? You know, I was diagnosed with personality disorder, and bipolar, and all this crap. And the truth was, I had situational depression. I had situ- It was easy for me to call myself Zelda when I was drunk because then I wouldn't have to take responsibility. So I called myself Zelda after Zelda Fitzgerald. She was drunk and it was glamorous. And it's an alternate personality. Exactly. And then I, poor little Debbie, well, she was just a wounded little little girl. We can't get upset with her. So I created all these personas. And then little by little by little by little by little, and I'm still, you know, I can honestly say after I'll be 20 years sober, uh, February 2002, I got sober. Uh, I, I relapsed once. I got sober just before that. I went to that meeting in Beverly Hills, and I went and I drank. And then this girl came over, uh, an actress's daughter, actually, came over. She was became my first friend. And we dumped the alcohol and the men down the dumpster. And that was February 2nd, 2002. I said, there go the men, there go the alcohol. And I, I, um, AA doesn't like to hear this, but it's the truth, which is, all these years later, it was Dr. Wayne Dyer was very instrumental in my uh, verbiage, which was, I'm not, a, I, I don't drink alcohol. Alcohol is poison. And if I've got a little girl inside of me that never grew up, I'm going to love and hug her and not poison her with alcohol. I'm going to allow her to be loved. And that was the verbiage I started using. Yeah, because Dr. Dyer, I, I don't was was he a twelve step guy? I know he stopped drinking. You know, actually, um, I believe he was sober and he did speak at some meetings. But okay. he had his own uh, sort of uh, spiritual journey. Which clearly was working for him and many and millions of other people. Well, you know, it's it's true. It it was. And so I sort of took AA and I took what I needed and I left the rest. I was I'm a huge to this day, firm believer in affirmations. And and when people ask me to sponsor them, I have a real hard time Why? with raising your hand and saying, Hi, I'm Deborah and I'm an alcoholic. What I did with that was this. Let's recognize what I am, and now I'm going to change the verbiage into a positive, which is, I don't drink alcohol. I'm not going to poison my inner child. What, what are you going to do if, if, if you have a bad day or someone beats you up uh, verbally or you're at work and you're, or, or, you know, you, you're, you know, what it, we all have that inner child. We all are aware of this. We yeah, and it was arrested, child. right? I mean, like, I, I was arrested. I stopped growing the moment I started to well, drink because no, it was the only thing I wanted to do. It's arrested development. That's yep. right. And we, we all have these inner childs that have a paradigm that is so hard to get rid of. And Dr. Joe Dispenza talks about that paradigm. The one that we were born with. It's just an old, old, old story. It's like the hard drive in a computer. It is so hard to reprogram. And so if I shared a meeting, it's like, look, I got a sponsor. I started working the steps with that sponsor. I brought Dr. Wayne Dyer in. I then found Dr. Joe Dispenza and started reading a book called, um, um, oh, gosh. But it's breaking the habit of breaking the habit of being yourself by Dr. Joe Dispenza. I love. I've never heard that about you know the story like a hard drive. It's just so hard to reprogram because that's what it is. Well, because what happens, and I've learned this, you know, in our formative years, that's when we learn trust, love, all of those safety things. And in my world, I didn't get that. There was no safe place from the time. From the time I was in that woman's womb, there was not a safe place on the planet. I popped out. It wasn't safe, ever. And so that was my world. Drugs and alcohol made the world safe for me to be able to maneuver. I even had a therapist once say, well, thank God for alcohol or you wouldn't have gotten anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, you know. <laughs> That's how I and looked at it for a while. 
like, well, it's kind of true. But then as time went on, I became to realize that I can change the story. I can change my story. And I will go and visit the story like I have today, but I'll get out of there right away. Because I can honestly tell you, Peter, when I look in the mirror at 61 and the boobs are a little lower and the things are different and I'm not looking at that beautiful 30-year-old girl that walked in a room and everybody wanted to meet her and like her, you know, and I go out now and everybody's not jumping up and down to meet me, I am in such acceptance and in love with myself that I can wake up so tired out of my mind, like, how am I going to get through this day? And I want to go to work and go, oh, be nice to me today because I'm really tired and wah, wah, wah. And you know what? That choice changes to this. Hey, I know you worked late last night. How you doing? Can I get you a cup of coffee? <sighs> and then all of a sudden, guess what happens? I'm having a better day and I'm not so tired and I just worked eight hours. You know what I mean? And so things change drastically when I recognize beyond a shadow of a doubt that number one, and this is a whole different show, which was the day that I was walking down the street in Santa Monica. My brother had died. Um, again, I'm sober. Everything's coming undone. I'm getting older in L.A. I'm having a hard time. You know, I wanted to get a job in a salon again. And I started another business in the interior design world. And it, it's really hard to recreate yourself um, in L.A., as an older person, L.A. is very prejudiced against anybody over the age of 40. Um, growing old in L.A. is, is not uh, an ego boost. It's, uh, it's, it's not. No matter, no matter how strong I think I am, to maneuver in that city is very difficult as you get older, which is part of the reason, a big reason, I left, you know, and I moved to Monterey. It's quieter. There's less traffic. There's less stress. I did get a job. I have a couple places that I work that just love me, and my age is not an issue. Well, hold on. Asset. I want to take you back because you mentioned, okay, so you're 11 years sober. You're walking down the street in Santa Monica. So, so I'm brother in Santa passed Monica. Away. My, yeah. my brother had died. I, um, Oh, by the way, I had gotten married uh, a couple years after I got sober, but I don't want to get into that story. Uh-huh. Um <laughs> But it was a marriage of convenience, and I was desperate. I'd never been married, and I wanted a companion, so I married someone much younger than me because I thought he was my friend, and I, I just I wanted security. And I was and I was only sober two years. And looking back, I was still a newcomer, reacting on alcoholic impulses. Mm-hmm. You know, because it takes it doesn't take you know forty years or forty two years of getting high. And then all of a sudden you're sober a year or two and your life is great. It doesn't work that way. No, I learned the hard way. It a long time. Uh (laughs) So at two years sober, I made a choice to do something that I thought was going to give me security for the rest of my life. Well, that was just stupid. (laughs) So anyway, so our friendship was falling apart and Stephen was dead. And and I I was just really struggling financially. And I just didn't, you know. And so I was walking down the street and I was just crying. I was crying every single day. And I was sober a long time, <clears throat> and I just, you know, I'm too sober to be this sad, and um, I remember I sat down, it was hot, and it was in this August, I think July, August, in Santa Monica, I sat down on the steps of a church, and um, it was a non-denominational church, and it was six in the evening, and they were just starting their service, and this woman invited me in, and I was in my workout clothes, I had a little booted t-shirt on, and I said, are you going to judge me because I'm wearing a booted t-shirt? She said, God, no. And I walked in, and something happened to me that day where I just started to float. I, I could cry talking about it. I just started, I just did a, a whole new surrender in sobriety, a whole new surrender, and I felt as though I had floated to the front of this church, and this band was playing, and there were these blue lights, and I just started singing to a song that I didn't know, and I started to pray. And I just 
was bawling and bawling and bawling and bawling. And the pastor was this woman. And I asked him if I could talk to her. And I basically told her my life story. And you know what she said to me? She said, you know what? Exact same thing. I have a twin sister. We're estranged. I was molested in the church when I was young. And she said, I'm going to pray with you. And we're going to ask God to relieve you from all of this resentment and anger. And can I just tell you, boys and girls, it was gone. It was gone. And that was right during the Me Too movement. I started getting really angry, and I had realized I hadn't addressed some of my childhood uh-huh. issues. Because I, I, I had never considered myself to be angry in that regard. I was, I was always sad and poor me, but I never had a, an anger issue. I was never, I'd never had anger issues. This anger was welling up inside of me that I didn't understand. And the complete Story surrender me. will show us that. Uh, like, like That's what happened. More will be revealed, it right? This, it, yeah, and it was this complete on-my-knees surrender. So I started going to that church every Sunday at 6 o'clock, and I got a whole new awareness of a God that had been taking care of me through the car accident, through the alcoholism, through the drug, you know. So I attribute my sanity, and I must tell you that I feel sane. I spent this last year, you know, everybody says, I cannot believe you just up and moved to a place. You don't know anybody. You just moved, and I did. I just packed up everything. I found an apartment in Monterey overlooking the ocean. How long ago? I, this, was, this was during COVID last year. Okay. I had manifested, I believe, 100% in changing our story, in changing our thinking, in manifesting our destiny. Thank you, Dr. Dyer. Thank you, Joe Dispenza, for for giving me all of this meditation and tools. And thank you, AA, for giving me that, that leap into a new life that we as drug addicts and alcoholics 100,000% are our own worst enemy. If when my ego gets involved, I will I will crash the car. But if I take my ego and I set it aside and I become the dot on a butterfly and I go through my life not that important because I'm not at all. The world will survive without Deborah. Yeah, and I'm if you sit back of- and you, for somebody, you know, it's kind of Ironic, you worked in TV and film. Life is a movie, and it's going to play out in front of you the way it's going to play out, regardless. It's going to play, no matter what's going on. In fact, I remember thinking when all this COVID stuff started and all the political nonsense, I thought, Deborah, you've got your choice. You've got choices here. You're either going to be fearful and buy into all of it, or you're. I don't want to be right. I don't want to be right. I want to be peaceful. And so I thought, you know what? I don't like all the, the picketing and the rioting and the looting and the, the homelessness and all the anger and all the fighting and everything. Where are some more peaceful? And I literally threw the cards up into the air, and I thought I'm going to go to Tennessee or Texas or uh, Carolinas, and I investigate all these places. I'm like, I don't like cute and humidity and bugs. And I ended up in Monterey, <laughs> which is cool with no bugs, no traffic. And um, you know what? I spent all last year meditating. I, I made a little business for myself, doing hair out of my apartment because everything was closed. So I met people, started doing people's hair. I, I didn't depend on the government. I didn't depend on you. I depended on me because I knew I could. And... I knew that God would help me because 20 years, 40 years, 60 years had proven to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm supposed to be here for a reason. I've got people to teach, things to talk about, and people to help because I've got the experience to do so. And so that's what I do. That is why I'm living in this peaceful existence. Nobody can hurt me. And nobody can take me down, not even you. Nope. You can't say anything to hurt me. And the greatest gift of all is to say, no, I'm sorry, but that doesn't work for me. That doesn't feel good. But thank you anyway. The power of no. 
Yes. I'm able to say that now because guess what? I matter. And I come first. And I love me. Yeah, my, my, my brother's a therapist out there, and he's, he talked about, you know, you've got to put, before you can help anybody else, you've got to get your oxygen mask on. And put that oxygen mask up on boys and girls. You know, I <laughs> was in L.A. this last few days, and I was at a girl's house, and she's 23 years sober, and she was on a meeting, and um, there's all these people, I don't, 20, year, 20, 30 years sober, and I'm thinking, honey, this guy, so he was out of his mind. Fine, you know there are a hundred million avenues out there. Yeah, you know there's not just one way. AA is not the only way. No, and that's why I you love know? what you're talking about all this different stuff. I, you know, I was, and I love. I mean, Deborah, your story is unbelievable, and I think it's one of those deals where. I think Joe Walsh, who's sober, said it. You know, you look back at your life and just everything absolutely makes sense. You know, if if you're lucky enough to get this thing and turn it around, and you well, they they say that that I don't know if it's Buddhism or what, but if you can look back on your life and you can start to connect the dots, you can almost see the future. You know, I drive over this mountain; it's desolate coming home from L.A. It warrant it it begs one to really think and i thought you know here i am um, um none of this matters yeah none of this the corporations don't matter all of this anger and civil unrest and all of this none of this matters we, we're going to be born we're going to die the only thing i know for sure ever is I'm going to die. I just don't know when. And you know what? It's my job to love you and do the best I can. Do the best I can. Because I don't know what's going on in between. I, my brother died of a heart attack at 61. And that's playing on me a little bit right now in terms of he was as healthy as I am. Yeah. I got I got to ask you, though, how good did it feel? Or did it feel? What did it feel like, I guess, to have 11 years sober? I'm guessing you shared some some time with him after you got sober. That had to feel oh good. My, oh my! It. And let me tell you, when I got sober, my brother came. This is the part where it's way too emotional for me, even to this day, and it's been six years. As of August 15th, he died August 15th at two in the afternoon, and I will never forget it. I went into a deep. I went into such a denial and sadness for. A long time. I had to see a therapist because I, I shared at a meeting. I said, my brother died and I can't get over it. it. It had been like two years. He said, you're in arrested development. The event is still happening every single day for you. And it was. So he helped me. And then I found Dr. Dispenza. So Stephen and I, thank God, I was sober. He, he, he drove from Monterey to Southern California. It's a five-hour drive, five-and-a-half-hour drive. To give me a, my one-year cake, oh man, and my two-year cake, and then he had a son. They got a son, and they moved to Palm Springs. And this is the man who said to me when I lived with him, "I have to ask you to leave because we, I don't know who you're going to be, and we're afraid." Do you know? I, I I was so so I was sober a long time before I realized how hard that must have been for him. Yeah. And then they moved to Palm Springs. Guess what the Guess what the conversation was now? Oh, why don't you move to Palm Springs? We'd love to have you here. Then, and I used to go almost every weekend. I had It was my home away from home. I had a bedroom there. They left me for a week with my nephew while they went back to Monterey, cleaned up the house, got more stuff, went back. I designed and organized everything. I took care of my nephew. They trusted me implicitly with their home and with their child. And then when my nephew was seven, he was, he was a drug baby adopted because my brother was gay. And um, when he was seven, I, he was displaying a lot of addict behavior, which I shared with my brother. And they got him in a child outpatient care uh, with Betty Ford because of Aunt Deborah. And Tyler went into little weekly classes because my brother listened to me. 
in regards to, to my nephews. So, you know, when, when, when we were, we got, so we were on the phone every day. We were sharing every single day. He was my person, Peter, my person. Never occurred to me that he would die so quickly out of nowhere. Did that take, did, that, did that make you more grateful for relationships in the, in the present day and, it, it definitely, it, 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 let me tell you something. Or does it, it or does it breed fear? It, no, it changed the game. It changed the game. It changed the game. 100,000%. But not for, what happened was he, I have a twin sister, I told you that. And I always wanted to be her. She's, she's, she's ugly as a much dent. She was always unattractive and homely. She was always really, really smart and always let me know that. She was never my, 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 we were never close ever. And when Stephen died, she stole money from me because I cashed at his house. She, you know, did, you know, they started packing up the house. They had a cremation of my brother, which I didn't even know about till later. I had to ambush her to go get my stuff and to get a little jar with my brother's ashes. I stayed sober in all of this. Yeah. I went out there, his whole, my brother's, family was there they treated me like I was they still treated me like I was pathetic little drunk Debbie I had to call my sponsor and I had to ask her if I was dead or alive because I was in some weird world and there was alcohol everywhere and everyone's drinking and taking Xanax and I was the only sober person and it's the most justifiable thing as an alcoholic or drug addict like if you're ever going to get fucked up like you, this is where you can give yourself the pass. But you call your sponsor you know instead. I called my sponsor. I'm 11 years sober. And this is really bizarre. I knew their neighbors. Because we had, they'd come over and I'd been out there. And I knew there eight, they had all this acres, like five acres between. Like you had to drive to the next property. So I asked my brother's husband, can I borrow your truck? And I drove over to the neighbor's house because I knew them and I knew their little farm. And I just wanted to be with their horses. And they they were the ones that called me and said, you need to get here. And my sister drove from Santa Cruz, took me, uh, came to pick me up in L.A., and we drove out there. Not a word was said the entire way. As soon as she got there, she took the money. She Only her and Chuck knew where it was. Um, and so I was 11 years sober. Thank God. Had it been any sooner, I don't know that I would have stayed sober. The way I was treated, all of it. I called my sponsor. It was 112 degrees. My money's gone. I called my sponsor. I drove over to the neighbors. They they had been sober over 20 years. I didn't know this. Both of wow. them. Wow. And so they let me stay at their house. I spent the night there, and I went out in 112 degree weather, and I sat with the horses. And I didn't know which end was up. It never occurred to me for one second to take a drink or a drug. And didn't occur to yeah. me. Didn't even occur to me because I knew my brother had gone on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> I was really fucked up. I, 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 I wasn't, I was in, I went and I went headlong into a dinner. I got home and I couldn't, I'd only stayed one night. I called a girlfriend and she came and picked me up because it was that unbearable at my brother's house. Here's what I knew. Here's me in the middle of these people drinking. I'm going, how can I be of service? Is there anything I can do for anyone? I was like in a, some weird world. Yeah. Not one person hugged me. Not one person said, I'm sorry, Debbie. Not one person acknowledged that he was my brother. Then two weeks later, my sister went out there. Stephen had been cremated, which I didn't know anything about. And um, my sister was packing all my stuff and having a garage sale. And by the way, Chuck had already taken Tyler, my nephew, and moved to Reno, where his Chuck family was. Okay. And it was it was a collapse of my world. It was a my nephew was gone, my things were gone, my brother's gone. It was a complete and utter collapse. I'm an orphan now. Poor me. If there was any moment, poor me. That was it. And you were able to pull yeah. you you pull through that, and now you're able to share that story with other women, with me, with people that are listening right now. You know what? All I can say, if anybody's out there crying right now, because you should be, because it's a tragic story. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'll tell you something. If you're up against the wall, 
there's a hundred million ways that you can get help because life is short. You're here, you, you live, and then you die. And whatever happens in between is all your choice. If you're high now, you got a choice. The wheels are falling off, you got a choice. And people that love themselves do not, under any circumstances, have to, have to get high. We don't want to hurt ourselves. We want to help ourselves and we want to help others. I love it. Help yeah. one another and spread, spread love and joy. And you, love yourself. That's you, all I got, man. You've said it all, Deborah. I, I thank you so much for your time. This is now. This is going to be up tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon, probably. So I'll send you a link to it. Send me a link because I have no idea how. To yeah, I'll send you a link and you can listen to it. As just another uh, another alcoholic, it's just it, it just felt it was what I needed. So I appreciate you. Thank you, thank you. You know, I don't I don't like to tell the story and go for for that long. Like I need to sit. And get my feet on the ground now. It takes yeah. a minute to get my feet back on the ground, look at the ocean, know where I am, move forward with who am I going to help today. And very quietly. Thank you so much. Okay. God bless. Have a beautiful day and hopefully maybe meet one day. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay. Thanks a, thanks a lot, Peter. For okay. It. See you there, Deborah. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. If you have a quick second, I want you to go ahead and, and give back a little bit uh, to what has so freely given to you. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding, but I would love for you to go to the Rogue Media website and go ahead and click on a survey at the top. It's R-O-G-U-E, that is Rogue, the word media, network, roguemedianetwork.com. Take the survey. Come on, you don't have to pay anything for this. Take the survey. Thank you. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. Podcast.